0: Rachel's hot-footed it over from Weedy Castle this morning, where she spoke, and Rachel heads up our Weedy Castle Congregation and doing a great job. That's building really well, and uh, I was going to say what you're going to speak on, but I won't, because you can introduce it, can't you? Yes, that'll be good. Let's pray for Rachel. Yeah. Lord, we do thank you for Rachel, Lord. We thank you, uh, part of the team here. Uh, We thank you that uh, the subject that she's sharing with us this morning is something that you really want to bless us with. We pray that we receive all that you've got for us and you bless Rachel as she shares with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Thank you. What a morning. I did ask Phil for a helicopter. Because <laughs> we have a green opposite the church in Wheelie Castle, and it could have landed there and then just dropped us off in Sainsbury's car park, which I thought was a really great idea, but he said was over budget, so... <laughs> We just had to drive, but we made it in plenty of time. So it's really great to be here with you today. Um, I don't think I've spoke to you before, so it's a new thing for me, new thing for you. Don't allow anything to do with the offering here be anything to do with what I say in the next half an hour, right? I don't want to influence that in any way, so yeah. So I want to tell you about a guy. His name was Henri Chalier, and that's my best O-level French Accent, so if anyone is French, I do apologize, Um, but that's the best I can do. Henri Chalvier, he was a Parisian gangster arrested for murder in 1931. He always said he was innocent, but he was sentenced to life imprisonment in the penal colony of French Guiana, which is in South America. After three years of being there, Henri escaped and initially stayed in a leper colony before trying to sail away in a makeshift boat. Unfortunately he crashed the boat and ended up living with a native tribe in the jungle for several years. When he finally decided to move on thinking that time enough time had gone past and he'd be all right the authorities caught up with him and he was sentenced once more to 2 years confinement on an island called Devil's Island. There was no security on Devil's Island because it was not necessary they thought. It was completely surrounded by shark-infested water. And if you got through that, there was a huge thick jungle and they reckon the ants would probably eat you if you got into that. So there was nothing to stop you leaving in a person-wise. Henri thought, however, that however difficult it was meant to be, he would give it a go. And so he tried seven times to get through the shark-infested water to the ant-infested jungle. But he failed. However, on his eighth attempt, he finally made it across the water and escaped to Venezuela. Fourteen years after his incarceration, he was finally free to live a relatively normal life. Freedom is really important to the human condition. We long to be free. We don't want to be enslaved to anything. It's amazing, isn't it? Why would Henri and many, many, many other people in history risk their lives over and over again sometimes just for freedom? They obviously consider that it's better to be dead than to live a life of enslavement. And freedom is the power or right to act, speak or think as you want and the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians and said this. Galatians 5 verse 1, he said, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And the the word freedom in this verse really relates to this idea of not being captured, not being enslaved, not being in bondage. See, Jesus has released us from any chains of bondage so that we can live in freedom. But the second half of that verse suggests that even though Christ has set us free, we have to stand firm, we have to hold on to that because it is possible for us, even as believers, to become burdened down and enslaved again to some kind of yoke of slavery and bondage. the Galatians were a group of Gentiles, non-Jews, who came from Galatia, surprisingly enough. And they'd accepted Jesus. So the Gospel originally came to the Jews, and the first Jewish Christians had a full history and heritage of religious faith that included many, many ceremonial customs and laws, and they continued in some senses to carry some of those out. But of course, the Jewish believers, they were, they were fresh into the thing. They were like, they'd accepted Jesus. Hey, hey, off we go. So there's two groups of people in the early church, the Jewish believers and the Gentiles. And there were some teachers who came to the Galatian believers and tried to tell them that, yeah, you've accepted Jesus, that's great, but you really need to do some of this other stuff as well, like circumcision. And the Jewish rites and rituals. And Paul hears hears about this and he writes them a letter and clarifies the gospel message. And then in chapter 5 he reminds them, look, Christ has given you freedom from all that is past. His message of liberation, that's what the gospel is all about. So stand your ground, dig your heels in, be firm, you're free people. Don't let yourself become enslaved by rules and rituals and, regu- and regulations. That's my paraphrase of Galatians 5.1. In John 11, we read a story about the death of a man called Lazarus. And I don't have time to read that whole story in that account. You can read it for yourself. But basically, Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they're friends of Jesus. And one day, Lazarus gets really ill. So his sisters send a message to Jesus and say, will you come quick because Lazarus isn't very well? We think he's going to die. Please can you come and heal him? And I don't know if you've ever had one of those phone calls where people say, you need to come. It's not good. You know, this person is near the end. You you need to come. You, You drop everything, don't you? You get in your car and as quick as you can, you go to wherever that person is. But you know, in the story of Lazarus, Jesus doesn't do that. He actually kind of hangs around a bit and he's sort of, you know, they're all frantic. You know, Lazarus dying, Jesus is like, yeah, I'm coming. And so by the time Jesus actually arrives at the home of Mary and Martha, Lazarus has died. And they're in grief and Jesus comes in and he shares their grief and their sorrow, even though he knows what he's going to do. So he takes them off to the tomb and he says, remove the stone and they're like, Jesus, he's been dead for four days and this is a very hot country. It's going to smell. Jesus says, no, 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 remove the stone. And they remove the stone from the tomb and Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is raised from the dead and out he comes. But when he comes out of the tomb, he's covered in strips of linen And has a cloth around his face. See, you'd have a dead body and you'd prepare the body for burial and you wrap them up in this linen cloth and you cover the face. So can you imagine Lazarus? He's raised from the dead and he's coming out of the tomb, but he's still bound up in all this white cloth. He's probably walking a bit like a penguin out of the tomb. It doesn't say that anyone laughed, but maybe they did. Jesus said to the people in John eleven forty four. he says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And when we give our lives to Christ, we are set free. Our spirits are raised to life, but sometimes we need help to get rid of the grave clothes. We may have habits that need to be changed. We may have patterns of thought that we need to get out of. We need to stop thinking of like people who are slaves to sin and start thinking like people who are righteous. We may need help to stop thinking of ourselves as sinners and start living in the reality of being a saint. We may need help to challenge the anxious thoughts and bring them into line with what God says. We've been set free, but are we strutting around like a beautiful peacock Demonstrating the beauty and the glory of God walking freely, or are we waddling around like a penguin that's still bound up? Maybe we need some help. And that's what this little series that we're going to talk about for the next three or four weeks is this subject of freedom in Christ. What are the building blocks? of becoming really free in Christ and hopefully, you know, I mean you might already be there which is great but I'm hoping that some of you might say, well I'm identifying things in my life that are just like a little bit of a remaining grave clothes that's still binding me up and so that we can remove those and move forward. So that was a bit of an introduction to these next few weeks but for the rest of the morning I want to talk to you about identity because the thing that identifies us is really foundational. Who are we as people? This is really important to our freedom in Christ. So who are you? Who are you? If someone says to me, who are you? I might begin by saying, well, I'm Rachel. And you wouldn't say that, obviously, unless that's your name. But actually, that's not who I am. That's what I'm called Back in Bible times, and still today, if you're just listening to the dedication thing, I was beginning to think Phil was going to spoil my talk at this point. Back in Bible times, names actually did reflect something of who you were because they had meanings. But as we've already learnt this morning, Phil is a lover of horses, apparently. But I suspect he probably isn't. I'm a female sheep. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what happened. It doesn't really work today, does it? We just have children and we think that's a really nice name. And I remember when I was having my first child, I really liked the name Emily for a girl, obviously. And, um, but at the time, because we're quite old and our kids are quite old, at the time there was a lady on Coronation Street called Emily Bishop. And she, some of you are like, what? But some of you go, going, yeah, I remember. Um, And so my husband, Alice, is like, you can't call a baby, Emily. That's the name of an old lady. Um, So when our first daughter was born, they said, what, are you going to call her? And Alice said, Laura. So her name was Laura. And then we had another child. And I'm like, yeah, Emily. But if it's a boy, it's going to be Samuel. And it was a boy, so it was Samuel. And third time, come on. Third time I got my Emily. Hallelujah. And the weird thing was, by the time she got to school, there was at least three other girls in her class, all called Emily, so much for it being a name for an old lady. But anyway, what we're called, it's not who we are. It's just a nice name that you probably, that your parents decided to give you. It's what you're called. It's not who you are. I might say I'm Alistair's wife. I'm Heather's daughter. I'm Laura, Sam, and Emily's mom. But that's not who I am. It's just how I am related to some other people in my life. I could say, well, I'm the leader of Encounter Church in Wheelie Castle, but that's not who I am, that's what I do. I could say I'm a musician, maybe. But again, that's not what I do or did or whatever. It's it's not who I am. It's a really difficult question to answer, isn't it, who am I, Um, without saying all of those things. And this is the problem. If we mix our identity in with any of those things, it's a problem because those things are finite. If my identity is wrapped up in who I am in relation to other people, let's say, for example, being a mom, what happens when my kids leave home? What do I do then? Yes, I'm still a mom, but it changes. What happens if someone dies and my identity is wrapped up in my relationship with that person? What about if I wrap my identity up in what I do as for a living or as being a leader of a church? What happens when I retire? Can you see it causes problems if we put all our identity in those things? And people hold their identity in all sorts of places. They put it in jobs, in family, in sexuality, in gender, in social status, in their accomplishments, sometimes in their ethnicity or their ancestry. But who exactly are you? Right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You know, sometimes when we look at the very, very early chapters of Genesis, we get caught up in a whole thing of like, is this literal? You know, did God really create in six days? Or where do the dinosaurs fit in? Did Adam have a belly button? And all of that kind of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with having those thoughts, but you know, we've got to be careful we don't miss what God was really trying to tell us in the account. And here he's saying, hey, I have made mankind in my image. I have made mankind like me. We are created like God. Didn't say you were God, just to say, but we are created to be like God and to manage together the world that he has put us into. This is who you are created to be and this is the purpose of your life. The problem with being created to be like God is that part of that deal includes you having a free will. You're in the image of God, you're not a robot. So moving on to Genesis 2 and verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, he said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will certainly die. You see, free will is only free will if we have a choice to make. If there's no choice, there's no free will. You can't choose something. But God gives man a choice, a free will. To be fair, he stacks it in man's favour. You know, oh, there's thousands of trees over there. Go eat what you want. There's one over here, please don't touch that, because if you do you'll die. But you've got thousands of other ones. He stacks it in man's favour. But what happens? We have an enemy. And the enemy comes in the form of a snake. And in Genesis 3 it says, The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle. You mustn't touch it or you'll die. You will not die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God's knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, "'Where are you?' He said, "'I heard you in the garden.'" I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And this has to be one of the saddest accounts in the Bible. Here we have mankind made in the image of God, having a life of joy in God's presence, able to talk to God at any time in a beautiful environment. What problems we come up against when we question God. Did God really say you mustn't eat from from that tree? Oh, the enemy and deceiver of our souls, you will not die, said the snake. God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, imagine up to that point, they didn't know what evil was. They didn't know what good was either because you only know one in relation and you know opposite to the other. Everything was good, but it just was what it was. They didn't understand it was good because they didn't understand that things could be bad. There was nothing to compare it to. And also the snake offers the woman the opportunity to be like God. He said, if you eat this, you'll be like God. She was already created to be like God. He was just offering her something that she already got. We have to be so careful what we listen to. In this one account, we as created beings turned back on the creator. The prize was the knowledge of good and evil, which is spiritual death. I don't know about you, but it's not a prize I particularly want to understand evil. But there were no thunderbolts. God doesn't zap them. You could be forgiven for thinking that they got away with it. But there were some subtle immediate changes. They began to experience emotions they'd never felt before. They realized they were naked. Well, they'd been naked before, the whole of the time. Then suddenly just stripped off. So, what was that? Suddenly they realized why? Because they're experiencing an emotion called shame. They'd never had it before. Then God came into the garden and suddenly they experienced another a new emotion fear. Great emotions. You see, shame and fear and load of other stuff enters the world at the point when mankind disobeys God. And fear and shame are some of the most powerful emotions we experience as human beings. You know, the Bible says many, many times, do not be afraid, do not fear. Have you ever heard it said that there's 365 do not fears in the Bible, one for every day of the week, of the year? No, you're all going, no, well I'm glad about that because it's not true. But it is a rumour, it's a rumour started on the internet. There's around about 108 depending on which version you read, but there is a rumour that there's one for every day of the year. Not true. But God doesn't want you to fear because 108 is still quite a lot, isn't it? Don't, read, don't believe everything you read on the internet. You know, shame is such a powerful emotion. I remember a few years ago being in a situation where I was with a group of people that I'd used to belong to and I no longer did because life had moved on. But we were in this situation together and they were asked to do something and they kind of looked to me to say, are you coming? And suddenly I was rooted to the spot with this emotion my stomach started to churn I began to feel hot and bothered and I'm like what is going on but the emotion was saying to me you don't belong with them you're not good enough to be part of them this was just some stuff that I'd been processing and I'm like what is this emotion that I'm feeling that is telling me you know you're not enough you're not good enough you can't go and do that with them because you're not part of that group And I realised I was reading a book by an author called Brené Brown, who's an American author who studied the emotion of shame, and she puts it like this: she says, "Shame is the intentional, intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging." And that was what I was feeling in that moment. You see, shame is the painful result of broken identity. Who am I? I'm not enough. You see, we feel guilty sometimes, don't we? Have you ever done something and then you feel guilty? Maybe you lost your temper. But you know, you've done something wrong. You go to the person with whom you lost your temper and you go, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done that, it was a bad day. You have a hug. We're all done, it's good. But shame is so much deeper because shame isn't about what you've done. Shame is about who you are. It really does cut to the heart of your identity. And shame is the painful result of broken identity. I'm not enough. It's not about what I've done or not done. I, as a person, am not enough. So restoration of our true identity is a key to freedom in Christ. And who are we? We are created beings made in the likeness of God. We come from God and we are like God. In other words, we are his children. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, on you, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You know, when the first human beings made wrong choices and they suddenly became painfully aware of good and evil, they covered their shame with leaves. You've seen the pictures, haven't you? You know, Adam and Eve with fig leaves stuck in particular places. But we read further in Genesis 3.21 that God made clothing for them to cover their shame and he made that clothing out of animal skin. God must have actually killed or slaughtered one of his animals to provide cover for for their shame. And the covering of shame came at the cost of death. And the rest of biblical history is the story and the account of how God seeks to redeem and restore men back into relationship with himself. But the eventual, the cost is always death. And eventually the death of his own son, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, 11 to 12, it says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, the death of Jesus, we see the possibility of the death of fear and the death of shame. And the death of shame leads to the restoration of our true identities as sons and daughters of God. And if we are sons and daughters of God, we are enough because we belong to him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. If you're a believer in Christ, you are now his child. Your identity is restored. You are a new creation. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice that's in the past. While we were still sinners. Past tense. A sinner is something you used to be. But now you're a saint if you're in Christ. If you ever read Paul's letters, he addresses people, God's people as saints. He never says dear sinners in Galatia or dear sinners in Ephesus. He addresses people as saints. He doesn't even say, dear sinners, you've had your sins forgiven in Ephesus or Galatia or Philippi. He addresses people as saints. And it's really crucial here that we believe the right thing because if we believe that Jesus has sorted out the problem of our sin, then we see ourselves as sinners that have been forgiven. And that's great, but it's only half the story. Because we have to remember who were we created to be in the first place because this is about the restoration of that and the restoration of our identity. And we are created as his children. And he wants to restore that to us. We may make mistakes and we mess up sometimes, of course. Any of you who have children will know that they don't always behave like perfect little beings. But they're still your children, You know, my kids, over their years of growing up, they've done things that I haven't liked at times. But it doesn't stop them being my children. And it doesn't stop that you know, love, unconditional love that I have for them. And that's what God's like. He doesn't look. You remember the story of the prodigal son when he comes back and he says, I'm going to come back as a servant. and, And the father says, no, you're not. You're coming back as a son. And that's what God has done for us. You know, we can't you know, get this over strongly enough. We're not just forgiven sinners. We are saints. We are sons and daughters, children of the living God. 1 John 2 verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So let's have a little recap as we come to a close. We were created in the image of God to be free people. That's our identity. Mankind messed that up and in doing so damaged his identity as a child of God. Knowing our identity is crucial to living a life of freedom. If we don't identify as God's children, we place our identity in all sorts of other things, but they're things that don't last and they're things that will cause us problems. Jesus has paid the price to bring us back to our true identities as God's children. As Christians, we need to know we're not just sinners who are forgiven, but we are saints with restored identities and able to live the life of freedom that God intended. Yet if we remember back to the story of Lazarus, he was brought back to life, but there were some grave clothes to remove. God has a life for you. He wants you to strut your stuff as a beautiful peacock. Not because you're beautiful, you know, it's not about boasting or pride or anything like that, but to show his glory. If you can strut round as a beautiful peacock, you are showing and displaying not your own glory, but the glory of God, your creator. Or you can waddle around like a penguin, still tied up in the grave clothes. So I wonder where you're at this morning. Maybe something I've said has pushed a little button. Maybe you've thought, actually, there's a little bit of grave cloth cloth, left there that I need to just deal with today. Perhaps you'd just like to maybe shut your eyes while I just go through some things that may be on your heart it may be something different for you are you living fully in your true identity as a new creation child of god or are there still some grave clothes holding you back maybe you've always thought of yourself as well i'm just a sinner and i'm forgiven but you've never realized actually i'm a totally new person i'm a saint Maybe you still carry around that painful feeling of shame. I'm not worthy of love and acceptance. Maybe you fall into the trap, I think we probably all do this, of listening to the enemy of our soul who will challenge and say, did God really say that? Did God really say you're his child? But look at you, what are you like? Look what you've done. Did God really say Maybe you've never accepted Jesus and all of this is a bit like, whoa, what's this about? Just take a moment. Whatever it is for you, maybe you are living, you're already strutting around like this beautiful peacock, displaying the glory of God in freedom. Maybe if that's you, you can pray for others who may not feel that way today. Just bring those thoughts to God. Bring those prayers to him. Commit to listening to His voice through the Word of God. Don't listen to the enemy who says, "Did God really say?" And if that the enemy does speak into your mind and say, Did "God do not really say that," you can say, "Hang on a minute, yeah, He is in His Word. I'm a child of God. I'm a free person. I'm a new creation. I'm a saint." Let me pray. Just one final thing before I do. Jesus said to the people around Lazarus, take off his grave clothes and let him go. And it may just be that you need to talk to someone about something you've heard today and that's okay. You'll have a connect leader or, you know, or you can come and speak to me or to Pastor Phil or or just someone say, I need to help with just getting rid of this little bit of grave clothes that I'm still walking in. So, Father, we thank you today that we are your dear, beloved children, created in your image, in the likeness of God. And, Father, I thank you that your desire for us is to walk around proudly displaying your glory, not our glory, but your glory, not to waddle around like penguins still stuck in grave clothes. So, Father, today I pray for anyone in this room who is struggling with any of these things that we've addressed this morning, that you will help them. You will help them to learn new patterns of thinking, new patterns of behaving, new patterns of being. And you'll put people around them who can support them. Pray that if anyone needs to talk, that they'll reach out and talk about these things, Father, because your desire is for us to be free. We are no longer slaves, no longer slaves to fear or to shame. To sin, we are your free children. We thank you, God. Amen. Let's stand if you can. We're going to sing a song, and it talks about what we've talked about. Oh, do I need to? We're going to sing a song. No, I'm no longer a slave. We're going to declare those words today. I'm no longer a slave.
0: Thanks, Rachel. That was really. Great message, and we are going to sing that song. Uh, Rachel wanted to, to sing that. Just as we, Rachel, speaking towards the end, just a short word, I think, is, is, is from the Lord. And it's just a picture uh, of a label. Uh, you know the phrase, you've been labeled or we label things. Um, and I just had a feeling for one or two individuals this morning that uh, you're wearing a label uh, with a certain identity that you'd love to take off. It's a label that you felt that other people have put upon you and you'd really like to be free from this particular label and identity. And it could be a label that other people have given to you, uh, even family, but you think freedom for you would be to take off this label. I'm not talking about your Christian name. Don't change that. But it could be a label that you put on yourself as well. You feel that you deserve to wear it because of what you've done. Uh, but if, you, if that resonates with you or anything else that Rachel has said this morning, feel free to come over. last Rachel and Wendy. One or two others to be here. We'd love to pray for you uh, this morning because uh, it was a very powerful word. So we are going to sing this song. Uh, Kayla and the band are going to lead us. Thank you. <laughs>